with whom I am well pleased. From the heavens, a proclamation about how the Father just loves His Son. He's totally pleased with Him. So it's this spiritual high. And then Jesus is driven by God to be tested. And that is often the case in our lives. Be ready for temptation, for testing, um, right on the heels of a spiritual high. Right on the heels of really enriched, really encouraged by God, being built up by God. He will often drive his children, as it were, into the wilds to be tested. This happens with Jesus. So it, it can happen right after a spiritual high, right after breakthrough. It, it can also happen um, right before breakthrough. So it can also, temptation also often occurs right, right before we're about to spiritually break through to the next level of our walk, to the next level, as it were, of our sanctification. I like to think of sanctification, this is purely, this is not scriptural, this is me, not the Lord, as Paul says, right? But I've, I've walked with God long enough, not 70 years, but 30, to be able to discern in my own life, sort of, I, I compare sanctification, that the walk toward the holiness that God has already purchased for us in Christ and given to us, but it, we, work it, we work that out over our lives, that's called sanctification. I, I, I look at it not as like a steady line of ever-increasing growth on an XY axis, but rather like a, sort of like a terrace farm. Like a, like a like terracing, like a farming thing that's cut into the hills where it's, you have sort of a flat, not flat line, because that suggests death, but you sort of have steady, your life's going on as normal, you're walking with God, nothing seems to be changed so much, day in, day out, things are fine, and then boom, you just, boom, all of a sudden you have this increase of growth and of temptation and of testing. That's the way I found it to be. Well, one of the things see here is not just that this temptation directly follows a spiritual high for Jesus, but it also, if you fast forward and look at what's at right after this, it's Jesus starts his public ministry right after this. He comes out from the desert charged, full of the Holy Spirit, as a 100% man, as a man, full of God's Spirit, driven by God's Spirit, raising the dead, healing, proclaiming the kingdom in power, and people are just astonished. And so, one of the things I want to say to you is, if you're being tempted by the devil, he's using your flesh to speak lies to you, and man, you're being enticed. Take hope in the fact, probably, there's a very good chance, especially if it's a sustained temptation, that he sees breakthrough for you. Satan sees things that we can't see. He often overplays his hand in that way. He gives things away. If you're being tempted, especially over and over again in the same way, be encouraged. Oh, that break is probably very close. And so Satan wants to stop that. He doesn't want you to get there. So take heart from that and hold. Hold to Christ with eyes of faith and don't give in to the temptation. Sink your teeth into God's word. Use it as a sword, just like Jesus does. Um, when temptation happens, thirdly, it, it, it happens at an opportune time. We see that Satan here strikes, not randomly, but when Jesus is weak. He's a man. He got weak. He got tired. He got thirsty. And he's hungry and he's tired here. He's exhausted. He's in a howling waste. He's uncomfortable. He's alone. 
So temptation will often hit us when we're tired, when we're alone, which is one of the reasons we want to surround ourselves with community. If we are alone, we want to have people that we can text out or call and say, brother, sister, I am experiencing temptation right now. Help. We want to try to keep ourselves from being in situations where we're isolated. That's one of the reasons we need each other. We need the church. It's just lunch, one lunch with this woman at work who's not your wife. Just one. Um, it's just one beer. And, and I'm thinking, when I, as I say these things, I'm thinking about the first temptation especially. Satan starts out real slightly. Just turn this stone to bread. I mean, you're hungry, right? Seriously, what's the harm? I'm thinking to myself, it's bread. What is the harm in turning a stone to bread and eating it? It doesn't seem like an egregious sin. Like the third temptation is obviously ridiculous. Bow down to me. You know, I mean, that's so obvious. The first one is just hey, eat some bread. Hey, it's just lunch, just one lunch with this woman at work, right? Who's not your wife. It's just one beer. Okay, maybe two. Okay, maybe a third. It's just one glance at the computer. Um, at that girl that's on the news. I'm, I'm reading the news, man. I'm reading the Daily Mail. I'm, I'm not looking for anything, but it's just on the side there. It's that swimsuit. Just, just one glance. Who can help that? It's just a little lie. Just small. And then it's another. And before I know, I'm lying to conceal my lies, and then my life just becomes one big lie. Or, or and then I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't online nightly or every other night, and then it becomes nightly. Beer, wine, whiskey every night, and then to excess. And that's just the way it works. It starts small. It starts with, hey, turn this to bread. No biggie. Gossip. You know, I gossip once, and then I, and then I start doing it so often that it becomes a habit where I don't even see it anymore. And man, you know who the last person to recognize that I have a problem is? Me. You know, how well can you see the back of your head? Not that well. How well can anybody else see it? How, how, well, how well does my wife know the back of my head? Very well. I, I don't know, even know what it looks like hardly, except once every two months when the barber, you know, shows me the, <laughs> pulls out the mirror. Same thing with our blind spots. You know, our sins are our blind spots. The closer they get to pride, the more blind we are to them. You know, a drunken man probably knows he has a problem, but pride especially, and things like gossip, man, they're hard to see. And so we need community. We need to be in the Word for the Holy Spirit to be speaking through us and saying, hey, look out. So Satan's going to use this opportune time, and it's going to start small. Okay, that's what temptation, that's when temptation happens. Second point what it looks like, okay? So when it happens, now let's look at what temptation looks like. Well, first, it looks just harmless. Like I said, what is the first temptation here that Matthew gives us? And Luke gives us a different order. He switches temptations two and three, but this is probably, scholars think, for a variety of reasons, this is probably the order in which they happen. Um, but the first one, bread, both agree on, and he starts, he starts small. It seems harmless at first, and that's just the way it works. I mean, how does an avalanche happen? usually just with a little bit of snow, and then it accumulates. And then before you know it, the whole side of the mountain is on top of you. And, you know, that's the way addictions happen, right? That's the way in our sins they are, they become addictions, or they can. Um, you, don't, you don't just jump something whole hog and, and all of a sudden, it, you don't just jump into an addiction. It starts small. It starts with, I can handle this. I got this. Ain't no biggie just like I just 
finish saying. Well, so a temptation looks harmless. It also looks beautiful. It can. Most temptations look really nice. I was, I was at the zoo with my kids on sometime this week, I think Tuesday or something, Monday. And we, there was this leopard, beautiful leopard that was pacing right in front of us, right in front of us. It was just a chain link fence, so I was a little bit, <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, there's these wooden posts and the kids were like hanging on them and one of the zoo officials came and took Seth off. Like, thank you, I should have done that. And then like a chain link fence two feet in front of that and then leopard, huge cat, this high, beautiful, just pacing. You know he's pacing because he just wanted to taste. He wanted to just pounce. Gorgeous though. Really beautiful animal. Um, and one of our friends said, yeah, just like sin. You know, you w-, I, and I said, I said, so beautiful, I just want to touch it. I just would love to pet. And that's exactly the way sin works. Just want to touch it. Just want to pet it. And man, you reach out to touch this beautiful thing, and before you know it, it devours you. It devours you. Um, you've heard maybe of the Eskimo, the Eskimo uh, wolf trap of Apparently, Eskimos um, have a, a wolf trap where they set the, the uh, hilt of a knife. They bury it in the snow and cover it in, in blood. And the blood hardens and freezes, so it becomes a blood popsicle. And wolves love the taste of blood, and so they'll, the blood will be just be sticking up out of the snow, and they'll lick, 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 lick. And then they'll lick all the, as the blood melts, they'll just keep licking, and it'll become their own blood as the knife exposes itself, and they, they'll, cut, they'll kill themselves by licking the blade and cutting their, cutting their own mouths out, really. Because they, as they taste their own blood, they get more and more furious. Um, that's sin's a lot like that. You know, we end up licking it and feeding on it, but it ends up feeding on us. It takes us over. It starts small. Um, you know, and for Jesus, in this first temptation, the bread would have been, it would have been delicious. I mean, think about how hungry. I can't even imagine I can't even imagine after 40 days of nothing to eat how Jesus must have been. And it would have been great, and it would have satisfied his hunger. For It would have been fantastic for a few hours. But what it would have meant for us, having given in to a temptation of the enemy, what it would have meant for us was he would have had a few hours' satisfaction and we would have had no hope for salvation. Our representative who obeyed God's word rather than Satan in the place of Adam, in the place of Israel, in our place. We would have been lost. He, w- he wouldn't have conquered. He would have been fine. We would have been forever without a champion, forever without a mediator who obeyed God perfectly from the heart. It would have meant eternal darkness and hopelessness for us. There, w- there, w- there is no other way. If there, if there were another way to salvation, if there were many roads up the mountain, Jesus wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have lived a life of rejection. He wouldn't have been crucified and endured the wrath of God for us. He wouldn't have done it. He's not stupid. But he did. Um, so what temptation looks like, it also looks true. Temptation also looks, the lies of Satan, they also look true, kind of. If you look at the third temptation, 9, uh, the third temptation, verses 8 and 9, Satan says in verse 9, all this, he's looking out over all the kingdoms of the world at a high place with Jesus. He says, all this I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. 
Was it Satan's to give? Well, yes. Um, Genesis 3, man was given dominion over all creation by God. And man forfeited that dominion. He forfeited that dominion when he disobeyed God. And there's a sense in which Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And he had dominion because we gave it away. There's a sense in which Satan did have dominion that was given to him for a time by God because we lost it. And there's a sense, therefore, in which we were very much his prisoners under sin. But no. So, yes, it was his to give, but not really. Because God says in Psalm 50.10, for instance, I own the cattle on a thousand hills and all the earth is mine. So God is the owner. Satan is on a leash. So it was true, but kind of. Um, so that's the way that temptation presents itself to us, isn't it? If it, if it was obviously not true, would it really be tempting? Not, not nearly as much. Um, if Jesus had bowed to this temptation and to Satan, power over the is. Satan would not have delivered. It would have been the key to Jesus having dominion. No. So it, in that sense, it was a lie. So Satan kind of says, hey, it's all mine, and if you do this, then I'll give it to you. That second part does not follow. So it's true, but... Not totally, therefore it's a lie. It would have been a coup for Satan. It's a half-truth. It's just enough for us to bite. Hey man, this affair, this affair, affair, this affair will feel so good. True. It will. For about five minutes. Or five months. But eventually, you're going to burn your house down around you. And around your loved ones. Hey, this lie will get you out of trouble. True. It might. But then the trouble's going to double. And then it's going to triple. And then it's going to snowball into your whole life. Until you cut that off and come to Christ. Your whole life's just going to become a lie. To the frightening place. And I have... I'm speaking from experience here. Okay? to the frightening place where you can't even trust what you're saying. You don't even trust yourself. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? You've gotten into such a habit of maybe just telling small lies. Yeah, sure, I'll I'll see you there. Yeah, I'll send that email tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Your words become worthless, and you get to the point where you have that frightening thought, I don't even believe what I'm saying. That's a scary place to be. What does temptation look like? It looks like the devil, in short. Um... D.A. Carson says, the devil must not be reduced to impersonal, quote, forces behind racism in pogroms, okay? Hasatan is the, is the word in the Greek here used, the accuser. He's a real being, and he's behind evil, and he is behind, it's not, the, I, you know, I watched Star Wars Rogue One with the family a couple nights ago, and it, it's not the force, it's not some impersonal black dark matter, it's Satan. And he is what? Prowling around, looking intentionally for weaknesses, for someone to eat up. That's what's behind temptation. Does God use that to test his beloved? Absolutely. We get that right here. Thank God. He's, Satan is God's puppet. But he's real. And he's out to do serious damage. Um, and the fact that we, that we have a sort of knee-jerk against, hey, 
what does temptation look like? It looks like the devil. When, when you first hear that as a Westerner, even as a Christian, you can kind of go, huh? The fact that we have that response betrays the fact that, betrays one of our cultural blind spots, which is that we are enlightenment inheritors. We are the inheritors of a world system that is rationalistic. And by rationalistic, I don't mean we use our reason, we value it. That's not rationalism. Rationalism is we enthrone our reason over and above God's word. Jesus does not do that. God's word ought to inform our reason and inform the way we see the world. Our reason, just like every other part of us, our affections, our will, our emotions, all of which were created by God, is bent and broken. And Christ has come to restore it. The only perfect truth that we have that is to be our guide to the restoration of all these things is the written word of God, which takes us to the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And we see that example here, a reliance on things, but a reliance by Jesus on what he knows to be true through the very God, which he is the embodiment of. And that is a perfect, a perfect model for us. We need to fight against sin, but also we need to fight against Satan and his demons, the forces of darkness. We need to realize, in realizing that temptation looks like the devil, and the fact that he is behind temptation, we need to re realize we are in a war. It's not rando, it's not random. There's a plan, there's an attack on both sides. We are on the, if we are in Christ, we are on the victorious side, but there is an enemy, and he has a strategy, and we need to understand that and be dialed in and be fighting um, for the souls of men, knowing, though, that we, we follow a general who is conquered, who is conquered, and the battle is his. Okay, so the triple threat for us, just um, our flesh, although that is uh, alive and well and needs to be slain daily as we allow God to crucify our, our flesh and to be alive in his spirit, but the devil as well and the world with all of its allure. So the flesh, the devil, and the world, these things we need to be aware of as Christians. Um, what else does temptation look like? It looks, it looks resistant. Temptation looks resistant. And mutable like a virus. Sin is a living thing because it comes from the devil, who's a living thing. Um, the devil learns from our resistance and our success. As we resist temptation, he'll switch tactics. If you, you see that if you look at uh, temptations one to two. Jesus resisted successfully in the first temptation, so what does Satan do in the second? He switches his tack. What does he do? He uses scripture. Why? You ever ask that question? Why? Because that's how Jesus resists the first one. He uses scripture to resist the temptation in the first one, so Satan says, ah, okay, I see what he values. I'm going to try using that too. That's exactly what Satan does. He learns. Um, Satan will move from this temptation to that temptation. If you resist porn, he'll move to pride. Man, I'm so great for resisting that temptation. Wow. Let us be aware of that. Satan is crafty. He's going to move from that to that, to gluttony, and then on to fear, and so on. He's going to be searching for weak spots. He's going to be searching for right? Jesus' strong spot was, I'm going with the Scripture. Satan uses that. And he's going to try to use it against Jesus, and he'll try to use it against you. So, are you hungry? First temptation. Try this bread. Smart. 
it hits Jesus right where he's weak. Then Jesus uses scripture, so he goes, okay, I'll use scripture too, second temptation. Third, Satan knows that it's Jesus' mission to reclaim for us what was lost. What was lost? Dominion in the garden, dominion over all of God's creation. That's what Satan offers Jesus. What you've Jesus, I offer you now right here on a silver platter, all this that you're going to have to go through, this rejection, this cross, I'm offering it to you right now. The thing about temptations is that, is that they're tempting. That appealed, that appealed to Jesus. That's what he came to do. Man, Satan's temptations, they're going to appeal. He's no dummy. He's smarter than we are, but he's a defeated foe. He's on the losing side. Um, so, under it is resistant and mutable, one, it will likely get harder, temptation, before it gets easier. Okay? If you look at that from one to two, the bread thing, okay, Jesus resisted that. To me, the second one is the hardest. It's the slip, most slippery. Man, he uses scripture to tempt Jesus. That is sly. That's a toughie. Temptation is likely, as you resist, going to get harder. It's going to be harder to resist. Just be aware of that. But also know that breakthrough's coming. Be encouraged by that. Okay? Um, if you're constantly giving in to temptation, you don't know the force of sin. You don't know its power. Like as Lewis famously said, only the oak tree knows the power of the wind because it stands up against it. It's resisting the wind, so it knows the full force of the gale. The reed, the marsh reed, doesn't know the force of the wind. Why? Because as soon as there's a gust, it just blows over. And that's me so often. As soon as there's the slightest temptation, I'm gone. I don't know the force. But Jesus and Jesus alone knows the force of sin because he stood up. Only Adam didn't do it, Israel didn't do it, we don't do it. Jesus did it for us. He stood up perfectly against temptation, against the howling gale of sin, even on that cross. And then he received the full force of it, didn't get the payoff, but received the full force of our having given in on that cross. What a wonderful Savior we have. Um, and also, another way that Jesus, so we see that it will likely get harder before it gets easier, but we also see, um, to, we're taking a lesson from Jesus in the second temptation. Let's interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's what Jesus does, right? So, Satan, he's going to use, he's going to be wily. He may even use Scripture. Um, don't use Scripture just to get what you want. You see theologians do this. You see Everyday folks do this. I did this the other day, and I'll share it with you in a second. But Satan is trying to take truth and take it out of context and use it to tempt Jesus to do something wrong. Jesus won't have any of that. He uses, he knows the context of that scripture, and he uses another scripture and says, hey, but the scripture also says don't test God. So that can't mean that here. Okay? We can always use scripture to get what we want. Not always, but a lot of times we can use it to justify. But that's the way, Satan doesn't like God's word. He hates it. So he's just going to use it. He's not going to submit himself to it and to its authority and let it guide his life like Jesus does and like we are called to. He's going to use it. 
to get what he wants. You ever done that? So I really like craft beer, and, and I often feel, I feel the need for things that I really like to often sort of fast from them or hold off from them for a while or taper them down. And uh, so there was a season recently where, and in fact, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of it. You can hold me accountable. Um, doesn't mean I don't want to have a beer now and again. I'm just saying uh, there are seasons where I need to say nope or less. And um, I felt God pumping the brakes recently, and so I passed, and I passed a Specs two weeks ago, I think. This is right by my house, dangerous. And I just wanted to pop in and buy a Sixer. And uh, the verse immediately came into my head, even though I knew, like, man, I'm in, I really feel like God's calling me to extension right now. But that was kind of fuzzy, and did he really? And, and I had this verse pop. I did my dissertation on Ecclesiastes, and I had this verse pop into my head, of course. It's right there. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, for God has already given you what you ask for. <laughs> oh. I pulled right in. I pulled right in. Um, that's, that's using Scripture what we want instead of submitting ourselves to God's Word. And lastly, like I this temptation look like? It looks tempting. Simple. It looks tempting. Jesus was actually tempted by these things. They, were, they, they appealed to him, every single one of them, for different reasons. Um, I want to I hear, before we move on to the third point, how we fight temptation. And that is this. Jesus was tempted. That should really encourage you. Why? Know this. Temptation is not sin. Because you are being tempted does not mean God is displeased with you. Jesus, our Lord, our sinless, victorious Lord, was tempted to sin. Why is it so dangerous not to know that? And why is it so encouraging to know that? Because we're all going to be tempted. But sometimes you can be so forcefully tempted, especially the more you resist and resist and resist, and you feel that, you feel dirty almost sometimes resisting because you're so tempted, you so want to do. You can confuse wanting to give in with giving in. If you do that, you just bitten the hook. Because so often you can feel like, man, I've already, you can confuse, man, I've been so, I'm so tempted right now, man, I'm filthy. I've, I've already given in. I might as well just go do that thing. That is a huge deception by the enemy. You are not sinning just because you are being tempted and because you're resisting and because it's hard. That's the nature of temptation. And the more you're resisting, the more hard it is, oftentimes the more of a plus that is for you because God actually, he trusts you. He never gives us more testing. He never allows us to be tempted by the devil more than we can stand. And so it's a compliment in a sense. Like this person I know can stand this amount of temptation. So it's not the same. So don't give in. Don't be deceived by that. It's a lie from the enemy. It's not the same as sinning. And as I said, the word tempt can mean test. And it does here as well. So God tests us. I want you to know, God will test us as he tests his son here. He'll never tempt us to sin. That's Satan's job. That's from, that's from James 5. He can lead us to a place where Satan will tempt us, as he does here. But he will use it to test us like metal is tested, precious metal put under extreme temperature. And what happens? The impurities rise to the surface and they're scraped away. And all that which is wood, hay, and stubble, which is insubstantial, which is hollow, which is sinful, will get burned up and burned away, and you will become more like Christ 
resist. Know the Satan's tactics. Thirdly, how do we fight temptation? We fight it like Jesus. We fight it with Scripture. Jesus knew who he was. How? How did Jesus know who he was? Look at him here. God's word told him, and he knew it. He believed it, and he spoke it in the face of temptation. God's word had just told Jesus and reminded him and everyone else, this is my son. So many, I'll get to this, of these temptations are really about one thing, identity. Hey, Jesus, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be out here in this desert. Who are you really? Prove it. Jump from the temple. Then everyone will know. You're about to face a, 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 a three years plus of people telling you, you're crazy. You have demons. You, you're God's son. You're claiming to have the father as your, your father, Father God. You're insane. You're a lunatic. You, we, you deserve to be crucified. Man, show them. Show them who you really are. No, Jesus knew who he was, not through experience solely, but through God's word, through God's word. Um, scripture was Jesus' weapon of choice. As many of you know, it's the only offensive weapon, the word of God, the scripture, in Ephesians 6, in that litany of armor that Paul gives us at the end of that book. It's the only offensive them are defensive. Um, to wield that weapon of the word. We have to know that weapon. The Spirit works. When the Spirit brings the word of God to mind, it's almost always brought to mind because you know it. You might not remember it right then and the Spirit will bring it to mind, but we have to know it. We have to God. I'm sorry I'm cutting out here, but we're just going to keep rocking. Stay with me. If I patch out, then I'll just shout at you. Um, we have to know it. Spurgeon, the famous 19th century Baptist preacher, he said that if you cut Jesus, what flowed out was bib line. It's a made-up word. Why? Just did he magically know Scripture because he was God? No. He spent time in it, meditated in it day and night. And we are capable of the same thing, all to the same thing. It's one of the reasons hey, you have to read the Bible through with us, but we are saying, man, like, like Brooks said in his editing time, like, until that we are in the Word daily, um, that if you, if you don't really have a plan, join us. Let's read through it together. I mean, my wife and I are reading through it together right now, and it's just nice to know we're in the same place. We can talk about what God's teaching us, what he's speaking to us. Do that as a congregation, great. Get you through the New Testament twice in a year and through the Old Testament once every two years, so it's re there's a a day every seven to make up, to reflect, in case you get behind a little bit, which is great, very realistic. It follows the liturgical calendar. So, um, and, la and, and also how we fight, just know, as we fight, as we resist temptation, the devil will often overplay his hand. This should encourage you. The devil will often overplay his hand. What does he do here? Bread, so tempting. Jesus is so hungry. Use the scripture, because Jesus uses scripture. Man, who are you really? Show everybody. Very tempting. So uses Psalm 91. Uses the scriptures. Uses the Psalms. Seems, it seems right, Satan. That's, man, that's a tough one. Then the third one. I just like, bow down to me. You know, like, okay, you just overplayed your hand, bro. You're getting desperate. You know, and Satan will often do that. If you resist and you resist and you resist, he will often give himself away. Remember, he's smart, he's powerful, but he's a defeated foe and he's evil. 
There's no good in him. He's the father of lies. He is the accuser, Hasatan. He has many, many weaknesses, and he wants power. And he gives himself away here, and he often does that. And what, is the, what does Jesus say here? Something he doesn't say in any other temptation. He calls him by name, which is a power play. Satan, be gone. And he just dismisses him. Satan has overplayed his hand, and Jesus says, enough of you. This will happen. Be encouraged. As you resist, Satan will eventually show himself. He'll telegraph his pass. You grab that pass, and you go down the court. And Okay? It happens. All right. And lastly, under this point, you will receive the help that you need. Jesus does in verse 11. After temptation has run its course, after he's resisted, Often this means doing your best to make sure that you receive the help you need, like I said earlier, to have people around you, to make sure that you have trusted people around you. I have about three or four circles of people, some here in this church, some at our larger collection of churches, some that are older than I, that are mentors of mine, some that are out of the, out of the state, a couple that are out of the country. You know, I don't trust myself. That's, I think that's like rule number one. If the first rule of hell is I am my own, the first rule of Resisting temptation is don't trust thyself. Trust not thyself, okay? Put people around you that you can text out, that you can call, that you can, okay, email for me doesn't work because I don't check email, but, but um, so don't send me an email if you need me. Text me or call me. But whatever it is that you can quickly get out to people, hey, pray for me, bro. Hey, I just want to let you know I was tempted to lust right then. And I can do that because I know that's not a sin. Being tempted is not the same. Help me. I'm being tempted. I want to do it. I don't want to. Or, hey, I just gossiped. I just spoke this about somebody and I shouldn't have done it. I just want to get it out there. I've confessed it to God. I want to confess it to you. There's healing in that. So make sure that you are putting yourself in a place where you're not alone, where you are receiving um, help. Have software for your electronic devices if you have a problem with that. Or even if you don't. I'm thinking about, you know, I used to and I don't now, but do I really want to even not... Do I really ever want to be in that situation if it's not necessary? I'm thinking about getting some electronic help, you know? If you're married, make sex a priority. Don't go a month without having sex with your spouse. That's stupid. Unless, unless you're doing it, and I'm, this is not I that's speaking, it's the Lord, okay? This is in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. But God has given us sex in part to fight temptation. So if you're married, you know, um, make it a priority. Be proactive. Don't be passive. Um, Lead in that way. Know thyself. Don't trust thyself. Okay, sex is a blessing from God. Use it if you're married in the right way. Um, unless, you're, unless you're abstaining for a time, like Paul says, for fasting, for various reasons, to seek the Lord. But that should be an exception. Um, exercise. Don't not exercise. Okay, exercise is, we're psychosomatic. It's part of being stewards. It's part of fighting temptation. Exercise. Um, don't put yourself in situations that might tempt you, that you know might tempt you. Lunch alone, car rides alone with the opposite sex, not your, not your spouse. If you find yourself in that situation, that's different. Okay, do the best you can to resist, extricate, whatever. Um, beware late nights alone. Don't just not do stuff, do stuff. Feed, feed on God's word. Be with his people, okay? Feed on the good, wonderful things that he's given to us. Don't be famished, be full, be full. Um, okay, and what is it for? What is temptation for? First of all, it's for power through weakness. Look at Jesus after this. Right after this, he goes into his ministry in power. 
Desert time will always precede power. Desert time will always precede power if we resist, if we power through, if we cling to Christ and his word. In this way, temptation, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a hopeful thing. Be, be encouraged as you're being tempted that something's coming. A time of power and of greater purity, which is kind of my next subpoint, it's coming. It's also a compliment. God doesn't put newbies typically in the desert. He doesn't put new believers or believers who struggle so much typically in a howling waste. He puts his son here because he knows his son can resist. If he has put you in a place of hardness, of your roots having to go down deep, and you're looking at the sky as you pray, and it seems like your prayers, C.S. Lewis, are bouncing off of this iron sky, and God's nowhere in sight, and you're just being tempted out the wazoo, that's a compliment. God knows you can handle it, not by yourself, but with community, clinging to Christ, feeding on his word. Be encouraged by that and hang on. Don't give in. Temptations often precede triumph. Temptations often precede triumph. Y'all, the desert is the source of power. It's not the place of power, but it's its source. Because of the cross, God's kingdom works this way. God's power comes out of weakness in weak places. This is why the American church is in trouble on life support, the thinking all the while that we're rich and helping the world. We in the church, in the world, think like the world when it comes to power in the American church. We think just like the world, unfortunately. Um, we think power comes from resources that we can sense, that we can touch and see. No, that's not what we learn here. Power comes from privation. Power comes from humility. It comes from having nothing and crying out to God for rescue and getting God's help and getting God himself and therefore having everything. This is why the American church is weak, why she is prayerless and programful. Church, can we be a praying church? Can we be a church who cries out to God, who is a weak church, who is a poor church, who is a hungry church? Can we be a persecuted church? Can we see that as, as a compliment from God as, as we engage in a life of giving ourselves away and worshiping the living God and, and speaking and being Christ to people? And as we endure persecution, not being like, man, why am I being, this is America, I shouldn't be persecuted. Yes, it's a compliment. It's a good thing. Power goes forth through persecution, through privation, through weakness. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, David says in Psalm 63. And here's the key word, therefore. Because I'm in that place, therefore, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. And then we will see the kingdom of God go forth in power into this community, into our community, and into our lives. The economy of the cross, until Christ returns in power, his economy is through weakness. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, there's no life. Okay? Last Point and stay with me a few minutes and, and, we're, and I will close us in prayer. But this is, this is it, guys. I want you to stay with me. Lock in. Last point. Why is Jesus tempted here and in this way? Why? Okay, we've looked at temptation. We've gained a lot of things. We've gleaned a lot of pointers from it. But lastly, why is Jesus tempted here and like this? Well, 
if you remember back to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew says, there's this minor prophet called Hosea who says, he's talking about Israel, and he says, out of Egypt I've called my son. And what is Hosea talking about when he says that? Of course, he's talking about the people of Israel, the nation, the geopolitical nation state of Israel. And God brought them with a mighty hand out of the nation of Egypt, put them through the Red Sea, parted the Red Sea, walked them right through it as on dry ground into the promised land eventually. All of us would have said, okay, out of Egypt I've called my son. That's what he's talking about. Matthew comes along in chapter 2 and says, no, no. That actually was talking about, it was forecasting. It was a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus had to be taken down to Egypt so that he could be brought back out so this could apply to him. Jesus is the one this was talking about all along. Israel was just a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. So Matthew is already in a bunch of ways showing us that all of the Old Testament, all of space and time and history, God is orchestrating to point us to his son. Jesus is the axis on which all of the points of history converge. Matthew's already established Jesus as the true Israel through Jesus' miraculous birth, just like Israel, born from Abraham and and Sarah. Uh, Isaac was at a very old age. A ruler tried to kill Israel, um, um, Moses and and Hebrew baby boys in in Egypt, um, along with, um, okay, tried to kill all the, uh, sorry, a ruler tried to kill um, Moses and Jesus, along with all the Hebrew boys, okay, um, both Israel and Jesus went down to Egypt um, and then came out of Egypt from Canaan, okay? Both were tested for 40 units of time, Israel 40 years, Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness um, that God led them into. Both passed through the Jordan River, Israel to go into the promised land. That's how Israel enters after 40 years is God parts the, the waters of the Jordan and leads them through into the promised land. For Jesus, it's the opposite. He parts, he goes in his baptism through the Jordan, comes out and goes what? Into the garden land? Into the promised land? No. Out of it, into the wilderness, into the howling waste that our sin, that Adam's sin, that Israel's sin, had made of this garden world that God had made for us. And then what what happens after this? After the testing. Israel goes in after her testing, into the promised land, and she's told to conquer her enemies, wipe out the Canaanites, wipe out all those who worship false gods so that you aren't tempted in this way, so you can be a light to the nations. Jesus, from this point forward, goes into the promised land, into Canaan, and what does he do? He starts defeating God's enemies. But it's not people. It's disease. It's death. It's sin. He starts going and healing people, restoring blind eyes, speaking against those who say that we have the truth but don't have the truth, and eventually giving his life for us. Conquering God's real enemies and our real enemies. Um, God has just confirmed uh, Jesus' identity as a son, and he did that with, with Israel too. He said in Exodus 4, Israel is my son. And then the plagues happen, and then Israel is taken out of Egypt. Same thing here. Um, he's just confirmed Jesus' identity as son, and he has just underscored his love for Jesus. And so he did with Israel through the plagues. This is my son. I'm defending my son. I love my son. I'm bringing my son out of slavery. All three passages that Jesus quotes here are during Israel's wilderness time. 
as she is being tested by God in the wilderness, from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8, they're all taken from that patch. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, Israel failed in her testing. She was tempted and she gave in during those 40 units of time. But I, I will not fail. I will do what Israel tried to do and failed to do. Adam, in the same way, was tempted. Adam and Eve were tempted and tested in the, in the garden. Will they hold to God's word? No, they won't. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And the same thing every time. Your identity in the garden, what Satan, what the serpent's really saying as he tempts, did God really say that you can't eat from this tree? God's really not good. He's holding out on you. He doesn't love you. Are you really his children? Does he really want the best for you? It's essentially what he says to Israel and what he says to Jesus in this wilderness testing. And Jesus knows who he is and he holds. The point is that Jesus is the second Adam. He succeeded where you and I and Adam and Israel failed. Looking to him, resting in him, we can resist temptation and allow God to use it to make us more like Jesus, to cause his kingdom to go out from us in power. Jesus learned to resist temptation, Hebrews 5, verse 8. And looking to him, by the power of his spirit, so can we. And in so doing, we can become more like him, have his image more fully formed in us, and have his kingdom go out from us. But I want to end with this. Most importantly, when we do fail, if we don't succeed, when we do give in to temptation, we must know this. Jesus didn't. Not for him, but for us. He totally resisted Satan's temptations and clung to God's word from the heart out of delight in who God was and out of an understanding that he was fully loved by the Father for you in your place. The work is finished. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished, John 19.30. All the obedience that is required to the Father, he has done it. All the resistance to temptation, he's done it. That's credited to your account if you trust in him. The more that you get that here and in your heart, the more that you will succeed in resisting temptation. Because you don't have to, because he's done it for you. Therefore, it's your pleasure. Even when it's difficult, you're free. He's obeyed in your place. And he's died in your place. And he's risen to a new kind of life that will never die in your place. Okay. Let me pray.